The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, I'm Dr. Rich Vogel, a board-certified neurophysiologist and co-founder and co-chair of the NAS section on intraoperative neurophysiological monitoring. This podcast, as many of you know, is about neuromonitoring and covers a wide range of educational topics aimed at optimizing patient care, decreasing costs, and optimizing operating room efficiency. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Falowski to discuss neuromonitoring and spinal cord stimulator surgery. Dr. Falowski is a neurosurgeon and internationally recognized expert in neuromodulation and pain management. He's on the board of the International Neuromodulation Society and has held leadership positions in the North American Neuromodulation Society, NANS, as well as the AANS and CNS, where he is uh, presently secretary of the pain section. He joins us today from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he is co-chair of neurosurgery and director of functional neurosurgery at Neurosurgical Associates of Lancaster. Stephen, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to participate in our podcast. It's an honor to have you on today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've written uh, extensively about neuromonitoring and spinal cord stimulator surgery. And um, uh, in our preliminary discussions, I kind of told you, I tend to kind of break those things into two buckets. One is the techniques that you have used uh, to, to guide surgery and to optimize your, your patient care. And then the other one is uh, the, the research that you've done to demonstrate the wide range of benefits that neuromonitoring has uh, on everything from time spent in the operating room to patient outcomes. So uh, I thought we might start there. Uh, you and I uh, have uh, some history going way back to a time when you were just finishing your uh, neurosurgical residency at uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, and I was just starting my neurophysiology work there. Um, and I remember a paper that you wrote um, with uh, a, a neurosurgeon that you and I have great admiration for, uh, Dr. Ashwini Sharam, as well as some of uh, my mentors, um, Dan Schwartz and, and Tony Sistokis. And, uh, and, and that study looked at a weak, uh, I'm sorry, awake versus a sleep placement of spinal cord stimulators. And uh, in the asleep group or the general anesthesia group, the patients got neuromonitoring and the other group they didn't. And this was a cohort analysis. Um, so this was probably, I know that you'd written before this, but this is one of your, your first papers demonstrating that there's a, a clear difference between one versus the other. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely, Rich. And yes, it is very true. We do go very far back and uh, obviously have very similar interests. Um, well, the way, the way I think, just to give a little bit of a background, the way I think about uh, utilizing neuromonitoring for spinal cord stim placement is Historically, spinal cord stimulators were always placed in awake patients. And the reason we did that was because there's two aspects we worry about. One is a safety aspect. You know, if something's going wrong, you want the patient to be able to tell you, you know, either ouch or something's happening. Uh, the other reason is, is that we need to confirm that the electrodes for spinal cord stim go into the right location, that we generate the proper coverage or covering where their painful areas are. So we had a uh, keep in mind those two factors when we looked at utilizing neuromonitoring for spinal cord stim. So it's been very well established for utilizing neuromonitoring for safety in spinal cases. So we, you know, that was the one aspect that we had taken care of. The, the second aspect we didn't was 
uh, confirming lead location. So we had to develop protocols to make sure that we could utilize the neuromonitoring to also confirm that we were covering the painful regions and stimulating the right nerves. So that first paper we did was actually a retrospective analysis, but what we did it as was a, a single center look at a one surgeon who had done it always historically awake and then transitioned to doing it asleep with neuromonitoring. And what we showed actually in that analysis, our goal was not necessarily to show superiority, but what we showed was, was that the adverse event ratio, the repositioning rate, uh, the need to revise the systems, all of those actually dropped significantly uh, by utilizing uh, the intraoperative neuromonitoring. Our hope with the study was just at that point, just to show that it was at least equal and a good viable option, which I think we did. Right, and as I recall, the patients in, in, the, uh, in, in the sleep group with neuromonitoring had uh, half the revision rate, um, or I should say that the device failure rate of, of the other half, uh, of, of the other patients. So. Um, in, in the awake group. And then let's, trans, let's, let's fast forward now to all these years later in 2018, uh, you published a paper with folks at, at Jefferson and Penn State and Geisinger, it was a who's who of Pennsylvania. Uh, <laughs> and, and, this is, um, and, and this is a prospective multi-center study comparing safety and efficacy with non-awake versus awake placement. Um, and and uh, you and I, uh, met up in Australia a few years ago, where we were both lecturing kind of separately. And this paper had just come out and I had just read it and I was really fascinated by it. So tell, uh, tell our audience a little bit about that paper. Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine starting in like 2010 with a retrospective study, just proving that it was at least equal. Over the years, we, we kept refining the protocols, trying to make everything better, looking at, you know, paddle electrodes, percutaneous electrodes, publishing smaller case series along the way, but we finally decided to do this large multi-center uh, series and prospective analysis where we directly compared awake versus sleep with neuromonitoring. And to put it in perspective, I mean, the, the outcomes were quite superior for a sleep with neuromonitoring. Uh, one is the accuracy of placement was actually improved. The second thing was, is that the adverse event ratio was one fifth of that of the awake group. Uh, so you can imagine making it obviously a much safer procedure but we looked at many other different aspects. And I think probably one of the most important ones is the timing aspect. And I think there's a lot of myths around neuromonitoring that it takes extra time. We actually demonstrated that in every scenario, uh, sleep with neuromonitoring was 25% faster than actually placing it away. Uh, so that meant you can actually bring a patient into the operating room, put a breathing tube in and set up the procedure 25% faster than you could actually do that in a wake person. And then the actual procedure time was also 25% faster. And I think it's because you save the time with that patient movement. You save the time with testing where the lead is, and you can do it so much more quickly uh, with the, with the neuromonitoring. So I think some of the findings were, were quite astonishing for people, but I think it finally really established the use of neuromonitoring for spinal cord stimulation. Right. And so, so, so you looked at, um, you, you looked at pain relief and found basically equivalent levels of, of pain with both of those at both six and 24 weeks. But, um, and, and that's great, but we also, also found uh, shorter operative time, uh, shorter OR time total, right. In, in the neuromonitoring group, not to say that neuromonitoring caused that, but in the totality of it, uh, that approach to placing the electrodes was, was a shorter time. Yep. Um, and then, and then you have the, the, the lower level, you said, you said one fifth of, of adverse, uh, events, uh, in the sleep with neuromonitoring versus the, the, uh, versus the awake. 
patients. Um, so this leads me to my next big question, which I already sort of know the answer to this because not only have I read your page, papers, but I've practiced these techniques for many, many years now. Um, I want to talk about uh, what techniques you are using in neuromonitoring um, in, the, in these papers that demonstrate the benefits of neuromonitoring versus uh, awake uh, uh, placement. So tell me, um, you know, just globally, what modalities are you using in totality? Why are you using them? And then how are we, uh, you know, what, what modality or modalities are we using to actually place the electrode and guide its placement? And why is that beneficial to just placing it versus radiographic? That's a lot of questions. We can break it down, but let's just start with the modalities from a Gestalt perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I can actually give a good summary of to answer all those questions is, you know, we, there is an anatomic placement you can do under x-ray, but it's actually been very well shown that about 40% of the time the spinal cord is not in the midline. In fact, actually, there's a really good paper that was released that showed if you placed even a five column paddle electrode under anatomic midline, 20% of the time, it would still be completely off and not give you the coverage you needed. So that tells you that you do truly need to test that these electrodes are on either physiological midline or covering the pain that you want. The two modalities that we use most commonly, uh, the first one is, and the one we usually go to is EMG uh, recordings. And what we do is we do what we call like an H reflex where we turn on the stimulation and you generate a sensory response in the spinal cord that's so big you get a muscle contraction. It's actually what we call an orthodromic or reverse activity outside the spinal cord. And then basically what we know is, is if you're generating paresthesias, say in the thigh, your thigh is going to contract because that's the H reflex. So that's what we do. We use these EMG responses to show where we're generating the coverage. And we can actually tell how far left or right we are based on, on the amplitudes. Uh, the accuracy is, is pretty amazing because at, we're at the point now where we can tell you we're 60% on the left, 40% on the, on the right with, with some of these responses. We can say that we're generating coverage in the quadricep, but not in the, in the foot or the gastroc. Uh, so that is the modality we most commonly go to. On occasion, depending on patients with severe neuropathies, um, sometimes we may not be able to generate such great signals with that. And then our backup is what we call SSAP collision testing, or we're looking at sensory signals. And we know that when you generate paresthesias with these stimulators or turn up the stimulators, you actually block out the, the sensory responses. So we use it as a, what we call collision testing. So we'll run the sensory signals, start turning on the stimulator and see which signals drop out, whether it's the left side or the right side. And that can also confirm the location of our electrode. Right, so um, just as we think about the EMG response, um, years ago, I remember we used to say, well, it doesn't have to overlap um, or it doesn't matter if if the uh, EMG response that we evoke, for example, in the lower extremity overlaps with uh, the, 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 the pain location. Um, and I know then there was a period of time when the jury's out on that. Where are we now? Do you look for overlap in that muscle uh, where, or, or, or grouping of muscles where the patient is experiencing pain? Well, that's a great question because I, I still think it's up for debate even at this time. Um, a lot of times now we, you know, the person, uh, the patient undergoes a trial first, and we kind of get an idea of what they call the sweet spot or the level in the spine that it has to go to. So as a surgeon, when I come in to put the paddle electrode in, I already know that we're aiming for say T8 or, or T9. So then it becomes more of a laterality issue to me, generating EMG on the either bilateral or, or more so on the, the side that we're covering the pain for. 
however, sometimes we, we also do trials with neuromonitoring. And in those scenarios, we will actually sometimes look for the actual coverage uh, that we're generating and where it will move the electrode up or down accordingly for that. Um, what I will say though, too, is there's a big push in, in spinal cord stimulation now where the level of the spine we place it at has become pretty standard. And that pretty standard levels are the T89 interspace and the T910 interspace are these two very standard levels we go to. Um, so, and just to revisit the SSCP collision, um, you know, in, in, in both of these cases, actually, in the EMG and the SSCPs, and um, you, know, you and I know this, but we're also speaking to a larger audience, you're choosing uh, groupings of electrodes on the paddle uh, that, that's on the spinal cord, and you're stimulating those. And in the case of the EMG, there's just this passive recording that's going on from the muscles and, the, for example, the lower extremity, and you're looking for these discrete responses that come into those muscles that you can record. And for the SSCPs, you, you, you do the same thing uh, stimulation-wise for the uh, paddle electrode, but uh, at, at kind of the same time you're turning that on, you're also stimulating a peripheral nerve, the lower extremity, and trying to evoke an SSCP from, uh, from a cortical response over the brain. And the idea is if you're stimulating the left side of the spinal cord with the paddle electrode, you should see a decrease or absence of the SSCP recorded uh, response to stimulation of the left leg and the right leg should remain unchanged. Correct. Exactly. Um, so, so the next thing I want to go to is um, the, the broader use of modalities that you use. Uh, I don't know if you still do this or not, but um, you know, in the past we have included motor evoke potentials and somatosensory evoke potentials. Uh, just for kind of uh, evaluation of motor and sensory function during the course of the surgery. Are you, um, is that something that you, uh, that you do? Yes. From, from a safety aspect, I always continuously run the, the sensory and the motors. And um, this, this is a question that I often ask surgeons, um, and, and you've probably heard this before, but one of the criticisms that we hear all the time about neuromonitoring in general is that by the time there's an alert that's potentially indicative of an injury, it's too late to do anything about it. So neuromonitoring is not really beneficial. So it's got this diagnostic benefit, but there's nothing therapeutic uh, in terms of its utility because uh, there's nothing that you can do in the face of the change. Uh, has that been your experience uh, I will say actually very much specific to spinal cord stimulation that, is, that has not been my experience. And one of the things we do is when we're actually placing the, the paddle electrode through the laminectomy, we're running the sensory signals continuous. So in real time, as the electrode is going in, if it was creating any type of pressure phenomenon on those dorsal columns to, to potentially start injuring those sensory fibers, we would start seeing a decrease in sensory signals. And this is something that has actually uh, happened to me. Uh, in the past. And if you get the alert for that, I right away pull out the electrode. You wait to see if the signals start to return. You can raise the blood pressure. You can administer steroids um, and then reevaluate, you know, why is there a pressure phenomenon that's happening? So I actually think it, especially with spinal cord stim, it's quite the opposite. It gives you the ability to know something's happening in real time. 
Great. So uh, for the audience, I uh, just want to point out there's two papers that, that you've published, uh, one in 2016, one in 2018, that really kind of dive into the techniques that you've used, both the EMG and the, uh, and the SCP collision techniques. Um, so anybody in the audience can reach out to either you or I to find out more about those. They're both available on PubMed. Um, as a final closing statement, do you have any clinical pearls that you'd like to share with the audience based on your experience with using neuromonitoring in general? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I'm obviously from the beginning have become a very big fan of, of neuromonitoring. I use it for all my procedures, whether it's spinal you know, fusions, decompressions, uh, but especially for spinal cord stims, since that's what I do uh, primarily in my practice. And I can tell you that once I've you know, had established doing it, I, I never wanted to go back. I think there's so many benefits to using it and especially with spinal cord stim. And we've now clearly seen that uh, with, with the papers. And I think it's uh, definitely showing that a lot of the myths we believe that neuromonitoring uh, takes takes too long. It's not effective. It doesn't decrease adverse events. We've actually shown in these papers that that's not the case at all. So kind of taking away those myths that a lot of physicians have. Well, that's great, uh, great uh, clinical pearl and great advice. So uh, Dr. Stephen Falowski, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. It's been an honor to have you on. And our audience can uh, always reach out to either one of us if they have questions about neuromonitoring and spinal cord simulator surgery. Thanks. Thank you.